from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming on today's show, Sandra Blakesley is talking about her book, The Body Has a Mind of Its Own. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up, here, on the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Science Show. Well, maps help us to navigate through the world in more ways than one. The brain is structured in a way that body maps are one of its internal organizing features. What are these body maps in the brain and how do they guide our behavior? Well, joining us today on the Grox Science Show to discuss this issue is Ms. Sandra Blakesley. Ms. Blakesley is the acclaimed science writer for the New York Times, whose many articles and books have ranged across science topics as diverse as the environment, earth sciences, and biology. Together with her son, Matt Blakesley, she has penned the new book, The Body Has a Mind of Its Own, How Brain Maps in Your Brain Help You Do Most Everything Better. Ms. Blakesley, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure to have in the program, and certainly, I think, a very fascinating book. But I think a lot of people might be wondering, what exactly is a brain map? So, you have actually a sprawling network of body maps in your brain. So, let me just sort of say that the, the brain, it understands the world through a kind of a mapping procedure. So, you have visual maps. So, when vision comes in, you're mapping the visual world. You have auditory maps. So, sound comes in, you map the auditory world. But you have this array of body maps that are pretty much out of consciousness. They're automatic. They're online all the time. And they're multiple maps. So, so one is a touch map. If you pat your shoulder, your left shoulder, say, on the right side of your brain there's a shoulder area that is in communication with those touch sensors in your shoulder. And you have a map of your shoulder, your arm, each leg, each toe, each finger is literally mapped. It's laid out in a kind of a, a draped form across this swath of tissue that goes across your head above your ear, and that's called your primary touch map. A little in front of that, you have a primary movement map for your body. So if you wave your hand or wiggle your finger, the commands go down from this touch map that the finger map in your brain, motor map, will go down and make your finger wiggle. You have a space map. So if you're sitting down or even if you're driving a car, you can put your arm out in front of you body, wave it around over your head, down to the left, right, around your body, that space is also mapped, literally, physically, in your parietal lobe. You have a map of the space. And when you hold a tool, any tool, the map expands to include the tool. So again, with the car, if you're driving into a parking garage and you go under a parking barrier, you'll kind of duck your head and instinctively. And the reason for that is the car is a tool and your, your per space map, your personal space map has expanded to include the car. If you use a rake or a cane, for example, or a knife and fork, they become ex automatic extensions of your body, and you've, you feel the meat, not the plate under your, when you cut with a knife and fork. There's a vestibular map, which means a balance map. There's a felt body sense map, which is mapping the sensors in your skeleton and your muscles and your tendons and your joints to give you a sense of where you are in space. Mirror neurons, another set of mapping system. And then my favorite newest map, there's a lot of very exciting work going on, is called the interoceptive map. And this is a map of your 
emotional body. And this is coming up from your innards, your gut, your heart, your lungs are mapping into an area in your brain called the insula. And also sensors in your skin for things like tickle and itch and pain and sensual touch. The kind of touch you have for a baby or for a lover is also mapped on these special sensors that go up into the insula. And that's where you have your social emotions and things like chronic pain are mapped faithfully in this brain region. So they all work together in synchrony. When they work together, you think you're a whole embodied person, but they fall out of synchrony very easily, and then you have an out-of-body experience or a lot of weird things can happen. Mm, That's fascinating. So uh, clearly there are a lot of different maps in the brain, but how exactly are the maps synchronized and how do they work together? Well, you lay the maps down in infancy. You're born with kind of a default architecture in your brain, and then experience comes pouring in. So you will develop the visual maps and the auditory maps and and the body maps. And as you learn to crawl and to walk and learn sports, these motor maps are laid down and the body maps are laid down. They work in synchrony. Well, we don't know actually why they work in synchrony. Probably from oscillations are working to keep them dynamically tuned. But if they fall out of sync, so let me give you an example, like a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience, the maps become desynchronized. One of the things you do before epilepsy surgery is to open the skull, uh, look at the glistening tissue there, and you take an electrode and you poke around. You're looking for language areas, for you know critical areas that you bits and pieces that you don't want to cut out. So this was going on one day with a woman, and this scientist hit an area called the right angular gyrus. It's a little spot sort of above your ear, back in this spatial personal space map. And the woman who was being probed that way, she, she went ah, and she was out of her body, floating on the ceiling, looking down at herself and the scientists the physicians. And then he turned the electrode off and it was silent. So she, could, she didn't know when it was on or off. And then, boom, she went back into her body. He turned it on. She floated out. She turned it, he turned it off. She went back in. Later, he found another spot in the left angular gyrus with patients. And the first patient that he did this with, she felt a shadowy, illusory person behind her. She felt this freaky, spooky feeling that there was a, a man behind her back. So these experiences, and you can now do it with virtual reality goggles. There's a way that you can do it in you or me without opening our skull. But it shows that these maps can be desynchronized by electrodes. And when you have, let's say, an auto accident, there, there's a lot of blood vessels that come to this angular gyrus region. And you can imagine that a lack of blood flow could desynchronize the map and give you an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience. So it's the physiology of those kinds of experiences. Fascinating. And, and in your book, actually, you, you talk about a lot of different types of phenomena that can be explained by these maps and changes to the maps, like during either development or during various processes. I mean, one of the interesting ones that is mentioned is why you feel fat even after you lose weight. Yeah. So uh, I mentioned this felt body sense that you have. So this is called your proprioceptive map. And it's coming up out of your skeleton, your, again, your tendons, your joints. And it's telling you where you are in space. So let's say you lose 30 pounds. And the signaling now coming up from your body is that you're 30 pounds thinner. Your vestibular system has probably changed, too, because your, your weight is different. You're probably walking a little differently. Uh, and yet, many people report that they still feel fat. And that's probably a reason for a lot of yo-yo dieting. So all the signals you're getting from your body are that you're 30 pounds thinner, but you feel fat. And the reason is you have another sort of body mapping system, a more global system, called the body image And your body image is the amalgam of beliefs that you have about your body that are very often acquired in adolescence, along with whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or what religion you have. These are held very rigorously in your brain through distributed cognitive maps. 
But that belief system can very easily and very regularly trump this new felt body sense. So the question is, how can you get in touch with your new body schema? How can you find a way to communicate with it and not go back to feeling like you're fat? And there's a couple of suggestions that we offer about using somatic psychology or using wobble boards, which are things you can get in the gym, which will sort of hammer away your proprioceptive sense. And these are tools that you can use to try to keep weight off. I see. So in a way, you have to retrain the map to accommodate the new physiology. Right. Well, if, you have, if you're tuned to your proprioceptive felt body sense, okay. if you can draw on that, then I think you can use that to reevaluate your body image. But if you're not evalu- reevaluating your body image, you're stuck with it. It's like a lot of women that get breast implants, they're flat-chested when they're a little 14, 15, 16 years old, and they get teased mercilessly by fathers, brothers, coaches, or whatever. Usually it's a male figure. And then they think they have a birth defect. They feel permanently, you know, just that their body is deformed, and they'll want to get breast augmentation. Their bodies are not deformed, but they have this very strongly held body image. My son, Matt, was very short in high school, he, and he grew a foot like the last year of high school. And he walked around, I'm at UCSD right now, on the college campus for two years. He said he was walking across campus one day, and he suddenly realized that he was tall. <laughs> His body image just flipped a foot higher. But he had, he had defined himself as a short person. He felt he was a short person for two entire years after his growth spurt. So there is a kind of a delay <laughs> that can, <laughs> can happen. And unless you're able to get back into touch with that proprioceptive the real body that's giving you these signals, you're not. You're just going to have problems with your body image. Hmm. One of the other interesting uh, areas that you mentioned, which was the phantom limb syndrome, which of course people have pain after an amputation. Okay, that's that's directly due to your somatosensory map, what's called your primary touch map. So let's say, let's imagine you've got this map of your entire body. Each limb is sort of draped out. It's called a homunculus, and if you look at our book or any picture of a homunculus, if you go online, you'll see this little man draped out across this swath of tissue in your brain. And it's got an arm and feet and legs and everything. So let's say your left arm is shut off in a wreck. It's gone. So there's a map of that arm in your brain, and that map now no longer has getting input from the real arm. It's not getting visual input, and it's not getting touch input. So it's this swath of tissue. So what happens? Does it die? You know, is it like this blank spot in your brain? No. What happens is that the nearby, the adjacent maps, they either grow, sprout new, new connections or they unmask old connections. People are still not quite sure. But you're getting activation in that missing arm area, which is now on your face or on the stump on your shoulder. So, for example, if a guy shaves on the right side of his face, the right cheek map is right next to the arm map he will activate the phantom as he shaves. So the adjacent map now activates the missing arm map. If you have pain, there's a very clever trick for getting rid of phantom pain and also of the phantom limb if it's getting in your way, and that's called a mirror box. So imagine, if you will, you have only one arm. You only have your right arm. You stick it in this little box in front of you. It's it's right in front of you, and there's a mirror in the box. There's two holes for two arms, but you put your existing good right arm in the box, and the mirror reflects the good arm just as if you had two arms. Then you start moving your right arm or your right hand, basically, around as if you're conducting an orchestra, and as you look down the box, you see two healthy hands, mirror images of each other. If you do that long enough, for maybe a few weeks, your phantom pain will go away, 
sometimes your phantom will go away because you're remapping the uh, regions with your vision and you're getting visual feedback. You don't, you're not getting touch feedback, but the visual feedback is enough to remap the phantom to get rid of the pain. This also works with chronic pain. If you break your left wrist, say, and it's in a cast for six weeks, the cast comes off, your doctor says, your wrist is fine, there's no more pain, but you still feel pain. And you can have lower back pain this way, a lot of chronic pain. It's represented in your insula. It's, it's in your brain. It's not in, in your periphery. You can use the mirror box in that situation to get rid of that phantom pain. So it, the, the mirror box is very clever because what you want to do is to remap your brain if the mapping is abnormal, causing you discomfort. It's interesting that vision seems to have such a very powerful influence in one of your previous books, uh, Phantoms in the Brain. You actually talk about how vision can cause one to experience the sensation that, for example, a table is part of one's body just by correlated activity. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. That's sort of the, called the rubber hand illusion. And it's similar to this. This is a body dissociation as well, because with the rubber hand illusion, so, so here's the rubber hand illusion. You put your real hand under the table, right? And it's sitting in your lap. And then they flop rubber hand. So you flop the rubber hand out on the, on the table in front of you, and you have a friend stroke your real hand. So you, you can't see it. It's under the, the table. Stroke, 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 stroke. And then have them stroke the rubber hand with the same rhythm, the same synchrony, the same speed and timing. And very quickly, you will have the sense that that rubber hand belongs to you, that it's actually your body. The first time this was done was done by a guy at Princeton, and it was with a Halloween rubber hand. He, he thought he was going to try to dissociate this felt body sense with the seen body sense with the vision, and it was so real. He picked up the rubber hand, and he threw it across the room. He was so freaked out. But you can use the same thing, the rubber hand illusion. You can use it to induce an out-of-body experience in a healthy person. So the way you do that is you need some virtual reality goggles. So you put them on. Let's say you have somebody who works in a lab and can do this for you. You put VR goggles on, and you have an image of yourself projected six feet in front of you, so you're looking at your own back. It's out in front of you. Then you have somebody rub a stick, say a ruler, down your own back rhythmically, up, down, up, down. And then you have a similar stick or a pointer or whatever running up and down the back of the avatar, which is your image of yourself in the virtual reality. It's done in synchrony, just like with the rubber hand. And you will have a profound experience of leaving your body and moving into the avatar. Hmm. So this sense of unity that we have is easily duped. And I think people have out-of-body experiences quite often. They're not, they're not really that rare. And in, someday in virtual reality, it's going to be so cool because you will be able to, when you have what they call haptics, when you have feedback coming from the virtual reality and you have proprioceptive feedback and vestibular feedback and touch feedback and all of these feedback mechanisms that are now in these multimodal maps, you will be able to reconfigure yourself because your homunculus in a way, your body sense, this body schema I was talking about, is, is just a slut. It's very happy to be flexible and it will turn into anything if very soon if you want it to. You could become a T-Rex. Uh, you could become a, a lobster, and you could very easily move the appendages. Well, let's make it a T-Rex. You have little four little tiny finger, you know, hands in front. You have this great big jaw and this big tail. You could put some weights into the VR. You'd be wearing a VR suit. You would have this profound sense that you were a T-Rex or you were anything you want to be in, in the VR world. And it's not like Second Life, which is this two-dimensional thing you're using with a keyboard, but because this body schema is so willing to give up of itself, so willing to take on other belief systems <laughs> about <laughs> itself, that that technology is going to be 
very cool very soon. I think we'll all look forward to experiencing that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, me too. I can't wait. Well, a lot of this relies on the proper development and, and establishment of these body maps early in development during critical period. You mentioned then some advice for parents in helping their children develop. Right. Well, there's another mapping system called the mirror neuron system. I don't know if you've talked about this on your show, but it's a recently discovered, well, almost 15 years ago now, 10, 10 years ago. And this is a system, uh, um, let's say you see somebody waving goodbye to you and they're just waving with their hand. Well, the maps in your brain that you're watching, that are being activated by you're watching them wave goodbye, are also activated when you yourself wave goodbye. So what you see and what you do are mutually mapped in these systems, and they're mapped in the motor cortex and back in the parietal lobe. So when you're a parent, I think what children learn by um, imitation, and it's not in some sort of um, non-concrete way, they actually learn by imitating, and they're building up these mirror neuron map networks. When you go to a movie and you get scared or something, you see a tarantula walking down the pillow next to James Bond, it's activating the mirror neurons in your system. So you see that tarantula and you can feel the tarantula as if, it's as if the tarantula was walking to, next to your own head because of this mirror neuron system. Mm-hmm. And then back to motor maps, you can teach your kids, you can know that when they're learning sports, when they're learning to skateboard or when they're learning to ski or to swim, they're laying down Motor maps, and I just wanted to mention the motor maps in, in one respect. When you're learning a sport an, or dance or tai chi or any a martial art or anything that is as a sequence of complicated movements, when you're first learning those movements and when children first learn their, those movements, it's a part of a cognitive task. You're thinking about how to hold the racket, and you're thinking about all the aspects of putting the components of the other physical activity together. But then when you get sort of a modicum of expertise, when it sort of becomes a little more automatic, that's moving through your motor maps. You have, you have multiple motor maps. You have these higher order motor maps and you have a primary motor map, which is sort of motor primitives. When it goes into the motor primitives without any kind of thought, that's when you can use something called motor imagery. And this is the kind of imagery where you imagine in a very internalized, realistic sense of doing the sport like you're throwing the basketball, you're sushing down the slopes in the skis, or you're you know, making the movements in Tai Chi, or you're playing the piano or violin. Any, any instrument is the same way. If you imagine making those movements in, a, in this veridical, uh, sort of internalized way of, of activating your motor cortex, you will actually get better at the sport. You will get stronger. It increases your muscle strength, and it increases your muscle coordination, and you can practice that way. Ballerinas do this automatically. You know, they, they will, and, and musicians will sometimes do this. So motor imagery doesn't just make you better in some sort of abstract way. It actually drives your motor map. It hones your motor map. It improves your motor map. So this is a set of skills that kids can learn when they master a sport. They can use motor imagery to get better at it, and so can you. Mm, wow. One last thing about chronic pain. If chronic pain, it's in the insular map, and the reason that complementary and alternative medicine work is it's because it's hitting that map, and things like acupuncture and meditation are actually recalibrating that sort of a homeostatic state in that particular map, and, and that's just so new, and it's very cool, and has to do with your insular maps. Wow. I'm curious, uh, maybe just to close, how did you become interested in this issue? And uh, Well, how could I not? It, <laughs> uh, it is so fascinating, and I write about neuroscience, and the story is kind of long, but I heard about peripersonal space maps, the one that's out to the end of your fingertips, mm-hmm. about it, but in the year 2000 at the neuroscience meeting, and I was so captivated because I knew about the primary maps. They called the Penfield maps, the, the motor map and the 
touch map had been known since the 40s. But then it was such an, an I couldn't believe that you're mapping that space. It's like having an envelope around you. It's attached to your body. It isn't. It, that's why we feel, you know, when we have, we have shared very personal space uh, with children and with lovers and with other people. And it, it's activating these maps. And so I just thought that was such a cool thing that I put together a proposal. And then I invited my son, who has a neuroscience degree, and he's a great writer, to do it with me. Oh, wow. Well, it certainly is a very fascinating book, and I certainly hope uh, people will take a look at it. The book, again, is The Body Has a Mind of Its Own, How Brain Maps in Your Brain Help You Do Most Everything Better. Ms. Blakesley, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Well, she sneaks about the world, Maria to Carolina. She's a sticky-fingered filter, bumbling down the play the game at the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Do You Need a Map? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know whether or not these five people need a map or not. Ms. Blakesley, are you ready to play the game? Okay. Here we go. Do they need a map? Person number one, Britney Spears. Britney Spears. <laughs> uh, yes, well, no, let's see. Uh, she, Her cognitive maps are, are just stoned out right now, not doing very well. And I think her body maps are probably just fine if she uh, can move. She's not thinking very clearly, but that's not a body map. <laughs> uh, number two is Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> Similar. Yes, again, a lot of these examples, these are people that are famous for their choices of words and behavior, which is more cognitive. And these body maps that I'm talking about are pretty much out of consciousness, and they're just there. You can't turn them off. He has a certain style of behavior and a way of frowning and a way of making these facial expressions, which are part of his body map. But I, yes, he has body maps. Um, we all do. <laughs> Maybe not in his toupee, though. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe. Oh, well, yeah, you do, because the, these maps of your body image and also your body schema changes when you put on clothes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, a toupee would definitely change your body schema. Anyway. Yes, and thank you for that, because, yeah, I, I forgot about his toupee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three, B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner, yes. Well, <laughs> he had a set of beliefs, which he did weird things to his daughter in that crib. Again, I don't think uh, having body maps, uh, if you asked me about somebody with a peg leg, I would be better off um, talking about changes in their body maps. Again, he's more of a cognitive guy, because we all have body maps. You know, they're, 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 they're universal. Right. Four, though, is Dennis Rodman. 
Yes, uh, yes, he definitely has uh, body maps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so when you wear uh, bizarre clothes or anything like that, you're changing your body schema. If when you um, break a fingernail, you change your body schema. So he's playing with his both his body image and his body schema, and he's very, very deliberate in those body maps. And also athletes, great athletes, and I'm assuming he's a great athlete, have a, a special mapping system. We, we all have these things called place cells in our hippocampus, which, which is a brain area, and it tells you where you are in space. But there's a newly discovered other area called grid cells, which are just upstream slightly from the place cells. And they are not rooted so much to objects in the environment, but to like being on the holodeck in Star Trek before any objects are put in it. It's just where you are in space. It's very likely that athletes uh, like Rodman and Bill Bradley and those guys have excellent grid cell maps. So, yes, his maps are different. So are Pele's and so are, so are um, people that are really good at soccer or at those field sports have great place cell maps and grid cell maps. Uh, okay, finally, number five is the President of the United States. Oh, my God. George Bush. <laughs> No comment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's got a body, and I'm not sure about the brain. I'm sorry. <laughs> a lot of people aren't sure about him. Yeah, body, yeah. But again, you know, the thing about these body maps, you can close your eyes, and you can't see, right? And you can stick your fingers in your ears, and you won't hear. But you can't turn off your body maps. You can't just turn them off. They're online all the time, and they're out of consciousness, which is why you probably never heard of them. Because they're not something, until something goes wrong, until you have a stroke or you get your arm shot off in a wreck, you don't even think about it. Because it's automatic, online, seamless, just there. And so Donald Trump and Brittany and everybody, they all have body maps. Some of us use them a little differently than others, but they're just with us all the time. Well, Ms. Blakesley, it was certainly a very fascinating discussion. I want to thank you again. The book, again, is The Body Has a Mind of Its Own. How Brain Maps in Your Brain Help You Do Most Everything Better. Ms. Blasey, thank you very much. For okay, thank you. My pleasure. You. Bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.